Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. Now this morning, what we wanna do is to post the four defining differences between Adam and Christ. And we wanna post those four defining differences so I can fulfill a promise that I made to you at the beginning of the year, and that is that you would have a succinct and hopefully compelling definition of manhood. But first, it reminds me of another sign that was posted, this one um, at a golf course. And uh, the sign was entitled, The 10 Rules of Success. Unfortunately, this sign was supposed to be posted uh, by the first tee, but instead it was left in the men's bathroom next to the urinals. And so as guys went to the bathroom, they read the 10 rules of success. Here's what it said. Rule number one, quiet please, while others are trying to go. Rule number two, back straight, knees bent, feet shoulder width apart. Rule number three, form a loose grip. Rule number four, keep your head down. Rule number five, avoid a quick backswing. (laughs) Rule number six, stay out of the water. Rule number seven, be mindful of those around you so as not to hit anyone. Rule number eight, if you're taking too long, let others ahead of you. Rule number nine, don't stand directly in front of another person. And then finally, rule number 10, don't take extra strokes. (laughs) Well, last week, if you remember, we uh, began to formulate our definition of what it means to be an authentic man. And and it it gave me a flashback to years ago. This was a long time ago when men's fraternity was first being birthed here at the church and there was just a small group of men in a room and I asked the question, what is a man? And I was looking for an answer and we really couldn't come up with anything that was satisfying. We formed little small groups and tried to, in our small workstations, craft a definition. And even after all of that, uh, there was nothing that uh, I think really was exciting to us. And for years we wrestled with that and uh, maybe it was kind of one of these moments where you just thought, duh, we should go here first. But we finally turned back to the pages of scripture and began to ask, as we looked at the Bible, what is a man? And as I told you last week, suddenly what emerged were these two mountaintop figures in the scriptures who have defined the life of every man in this room. They are the two principal men of destiny for every man. And every man, as I told you last week, walks in the light or the shadow of one of these two men. They're the two Adams of Scripture. The Adam of Genesis and the Adam that's revealed in the Gospels. Adam and Jesus. And what we are doing and will continue to do today is press those two men together and look at their lives, look at who they were and who they weren't, and then by that comparison, come up with this definition of manhood that I promised you at the beginning of the year. Now, last week, we talked about the first defining difference between these two men. 
Here it is. The first Adam, we said, fell into passivity, and the second Adam rejected that passivity. The first Adam was caught with his manhood pants down, right? And how was he caught? He was caught standing there in a moment where he should have been active and vigorous. A real man doesn't just hang around. You know, so often, manhood is like the movie, The Invisible Man. While we're in the workplace, we're decisive, we're clear, we're aggressive, we're competitive. But so often when we move into the more social and spiritual spheres of life, we become just like the movie, The Invisible Man. It's been true since Adam, we start unwrapping ourselves at home, with our wives, with our children, around spiritual things, things of the soul. And suddenly, just like Adam, we disappear. We're there, but we're not there. You know, in that garden experience, what was, what was so odd about that moment is as the man's wife entertained this enemy, you would have expected him to be shielding her, standing in front of her, arguing with the serpent or pleading with her that she move away from this very dangerous situation or at least running into that situation with a hoe to cut off the serpent's head. Something that spoke of masculinity. But instead what you find is the man passive, silent, uninvolved, removed, quiet. Everything that's anti-masculine in that moment, Adam smelled of. He became the invisible man. And every man since Adam has a tendency to move that direction in the social and spiritual spheres of life, except the second Adam, Jesus. Jesus was a man of initiative. We look at the life of Jesus and we see a man of mission, standing up for what's right in all kinds of spheres of life, even when it's difficult to do so. And everywhere he went, one of the chief characteristics of Jesus Christ is everywhere he went, he was stirring the situation and giving life to it because Jesus was a life giver. While Adam, the first Adam, became the invisible man. So the first Adam fell into passivity. The second Adam rejected passivity. Here's the second defining characteristic. The first Adam disregarded his responsibilities. The second Adam accepted responsibility. Writer Roy Smith makes this statement. He says, the ability to accept responsibility is always the measure of a man. And we saw in that garden experience, the first man falls short of the three specific responsibilities that he was given. Whereas the second Adam, Jesus Christ, accepted in his lifetime the same responsibilities. Now, what were those three responsibilities? Well, there was a will to obey. That was the first one. Remember, Adam forsook the will of God in search of something better for himself and his wife. But the second Adam obeyed the will of God. Here are just some scriptures that indicate that. First of all, John 4.34. Here's Jesus speaking. He says, 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In Psalm 40, verse 8, a messianic psalm, it says, I delight to do thy will, O God. That's what's in my heart. I delight to do thy will. Matthew 26, 39 makes this statement. And he went a little beyond them. This is at the garden. This is at the, the critical moment in Jesus' life where manhood was at the supreme test, at least for him, whether he was going to accomplish the will of God, which at this point was unbelievably hard because it meant his death. And so it says that he went away a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed. And here we hear the essence of manhood. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet in that most difficult moment, he utters, yet not as I will, but thy will be done. And what we're hearing, guys, is manhood. Because manhood accepts the responsibility of a will greater than himself to obey. Secondly, Jesus accepted a work to do. First man fell in this regard, but the second man said, I'll accept the work that you give me to do. I understand that I'm a man under authority. So in John 17, 4, Jesus says this, I have glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished, that's the key word, because he, he was at the point of finishing his life, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And finally, Jesus himself, just like Adam, had a woman to love. And you go, I didn't think Jesus was married. Oh, oh, yes, he was. He had a woman to love. It was his church. And that's why in Ephesians 5, 25, it says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved his woman, the church. And here's how he loved his woman. He gave himself up for her. He was a life giver everywhere he went. So while Adam forsook a will to obey, a work to do, and a woman to love, Jesus Christ exemplified accepting those responsibilities in each of those areas to the fullest. And men, a real man is going, as you look at those concepts, here's what a real man's going to be like. Rather than not thinking about these responsibilities are just periodically drifting through them. At the core of a masculine life is a man who understands that there is a will higher than his will. And so he wants to know what that will is so that he can fit into it. He also knows that there's a work for him to do, that there's a purpose for him on this planet. And so he is aggressive to find that work for himself. It's not just his vocation. It's an overall lifestyle. It's a cause, if you will. And he will not rest as a man until he finds his cause. And then when the woman comes into his life, and for you younger guys, it might just be a girlfriend orbiting around you. Or it might be a wife of 40 years. But whether it's just the beginning of fledgling love or love in the fullest season of life, he understands his role, his responsibility, and he accepts it joyfully, though sometimes it's as difficult as being in the garden and saying, not my will, but thine be done. 
He understands that he is called to love and care for this woman, not use her, not abuse her, not take advantage of her, but to love her with his life. And he gives himself to that. And in the essence of that, of accepting those responsibilities, he moves towards the light of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And that's what gives his life meaning and a sense of satisfaction even when it's hard. But like John F. Kennedy said years ago, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And you know what? We choose to be the second Adam, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And another word for hard is noble, honorable, righteous. That's why we choose to accept responsibility. Now, even having said that, let's just ask some questions. And I, and I say this because I think it's important just to look at our culture just for a moment. But let's ask the question, what causes a man to accept social and spiritual responsibility? Can I give you just four statements that uh, I think are missing really in America in some ways today? But here, here's what they are. Here's how a young man or any man accepts social and spiritual responsibility. First, when it's clear from a young age that the primary responsibility for the social and spiritual well-being of others, whether it's a young woman or a wife or children, rest on him. And I say that because that's part of what's missing today. Here's, a, here's this young guy growing up in the inner city or the suburbs or the country. And who comes along in his life and tells him what I just told you? Son, you have a will to obey. You have a work to do. And one day, son, you're going to have a woman to love and care for, and it's your responsibility. Let's talk about it. When that is missing in a young man's life, he grows up with a giant vacuum, and he listens to the siren songs of the world. He begins to think, no, my thing is just kind of hang out, enjoy, do what I want. And when I hook up with a woman, oftentimes she's supposed to take care of me. Rather than me being the life giver, I'm the one that grabs this umbilical cord from my family that's been sucking life out of my family and now I plug it into her to suck the life out of her. Because people are here to give me life. Because nobody told me it's the opposite. And see, a young man needs to feel kind of the flat blade of that scepter on his shoulders, knighting him, saying, son, when you grow up, your role as a man is to care for others and to give life to others. You have a will to obey bigger than yourself. There's, a, there's, a, there's an eternal adventure that you're on. Don't take it lightly, but enjoy it because there's glory ahead if you're willing to accept it. He needs to be taught that at a young age. Secondly, when he's been trained from an early age by the men in his life to recognize and assume these responsibilities. Can't just be told, he has to be trained. Third, when he is honored, especially by other men, for accepting these responsibilities. You know, we laughed when we gave Asa up here that little card for Valentine's. 
And uh, he took it and hopefully he'll give it to his wife uh, this Friday for Valentine's. But let me tell you, one of the things we need to be doing in, a, in, a, in, a, in another kind of way is doing things like that for each other, encouraging, don't forget Valentine's. Don't do something special. Uh, get some flowers, write a poem, write a love note. Leave something on the pillow that morning. And you say, that's kind of corny. No, it isn't. It isn't corny at all. It'll light up the life of your wife. And then we can bump chest and high five and go, way to go. That's being a man. And you know what? You'll reap the rewards for that. You will. But we need to be cheered in those kind of arenas for one another. You know, it's good for an older man just to grab a younger man he's been watching who's out working with his kids, playing out in the front yard and just come up and go put his hand on his shoulder and say, you know, I've been watching the way you, you work with your boys there. You're doing good. Men need encouragement in these areas to assume these responsibilities and realize they're not onerous burdens. They're part of what it means to be a man. And cheering for one another encourages us to stay in the fight. And then the last thing I would just simply add, because I think part of this is ultimately has to be spiritual. You can't just be told to do it, trained to do it, and cheered for. There has to come a moment for most men where they're spiritually transformed in the heart, as we talked about last semester, by Jesus Christ, to desire these responsibilities because you know in the end they honor God. Really, these responsibilities are from God himself. So the first Adam, he caved into passivity. The second Adam rejected passivity. The first Adam abandoned his post and decided, no, I'm not going to take response or disregarded his responsibilities. The second Adam accepted responsibilities. Here's the third defining difference. The first Adam abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. Men were created to lead, but it takes courage, guys. Jesus led where Adam didn't. In fact, Jesus led in three specific areas. Jesus set direction all through his life. You know, one of the clarion calls of Jesus was follow me. Now, we think of that as the Lord of life leading his disciples, but you know, it's also a call of a man. A call of a man needs to have enough confidence, enough substance, enough weight in his life that when he's around others, he can say, follow me, especially in the home. But to do that, there has to be some weight there, some substance. Follow me. Jesus set direction. He also provided protection to those around him. He said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. He also made provision. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now you see those three things? Did you know you could go to Ephesians 5 where it talks about a man's relationship with his wife and you would see those same three things? Ephesians 5 says that the man is the head of the wife. That means he needs to have enough noble substance that he can look at his wife in difficult moments or the good times and say, follow me. It's what we need to be doing. It's where we need to be going. This is the course we need to be setting. He also provides protection. The scripture says in Ephesians 5 that a man should 
protect his wife in such a way that her life should have no spot or wrinkle or stain or anything. She should be blameless because of his protection. That is so counter what we saw in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Because what Adam did there to his wife is allowed her to be stained because he didn't give her protection. But the man is supposed to create a protective shield around his woman. And then finally, Ephesians tells us that you are to make provision for your wife. It says there in Ephesians 5 that a husband, a right husband, nourishes and cherishes his wife. Now guys, here's what I want you to know. Have you felt those responsibilities are yours? Have you personally kind of come to a moment in your life and said, I accept those responsibilities? Now, a lot of times those are mentioned at a wedding when we have a wedding here and the husband and the wife. But by the time that guy, if he hadn't had any preparation and I say, will you nourish and cherish your wife? He's sitting there at that point with all the emotion of the ceremony going, uh-huh. But he doesn't know what he's saying uh-huh to. And for some guys, unfortunately, maybe many guys in America today, that's the only time they're charged with those responsibilities in their whole life the only time they ever hear that they're supposed to leave and cherish and love and protect their wife is at a wedding ceremony. They didn't hear it growing up and they'll never hear it again. This is just a moment in time they're passing through. But I want to ask you, are you willing to accept those responsibilities? I had two guys several years ago in men's return. They were both in their 20s. And after this message, they walked down here and we, they were just kind of hanging around. We started talking and one of the guys looked at me and said, you know what you talked about today? I have never, ever heard that I was supposed to be responsible for my wife and family. Never. In America today, there's a whole generation of guys who, you know, they just, they, they just don't get it because nobody ever gave it. And so they didn't receive it. And not only did they not receive it, but they certainly didn't receive it as a noble cause, as part of my masculine destiny. But a real man accepts responsibility. And a real man then chooses with that to lead courageously in this regard. So men were created to lead. And then lastly, to be a courageous leader, every man's got to master one obstacle in his life. If you're going to be a leader, there's an obstacle you've got to overcome. Everybody look up at me. This is enemy number one of men. It's your feelings. Write it down. Feelings. Not too long ago, a book came out called EQ. Now, a lot of times we know what IQ means, but we don't know what EQ means. IQ is how we measure our intelligence. And oftentimes it's the measure of success in the academic community or entrance into a college or university. But this book EQ that came out actually said that a, that a person's emotional quotient or emotional stability is the greater predictor of success. And you know what? I'm in my 50s now and I've worked with a lot of people in all kinds of arenas and that is exactly my observation of life. I wouldn't have put it, called it EQ, but there are many, many smart people, much smarter than I am and much smarter than a lot of people that they work around who are limited 
Not because of their intelligence, but because of their emotion. They're emotionally unstable. And the greatest predictor of success in the workplace and in life is how you master your emotions. <coughs> Did you know the Proverbs say the same thing? Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city that is broken into and without walls, so is a man who has no control over his spirit. A man who, who bows to his feelings can never be a real man. Now, I'm not saying that you don't feel. I'm not saying that real men need to suppress their feelings. I'm, feelings are part of life. But greater than feelings is a sense of calling and my calling calls me above those things at times. In fact, at times I have to turn and put my face into the full gale force winds of feeling and say, I'm not going to give in to you. I'm going to do what's right. And a man has to have that kind of control over his feelings if he's going to be an authentic man. You know, Jesus Christ, one of his very first tests, when he accepted his new ministry, the ministry, now he's moving out of just uh, being a man into the mission he was called in. And you see it there in Matthew 4. And the very first thing that God does to prepare him for that mission, he sends him out in the wilderness for 40 days without food. And in that he becomes intensely hungry and tired. And then he's tempted by the enemy. So all his feelings are calling him to satisfy his basic desires. And so the enemy comes in that weakened condition and he says, hey, you can turn these stones into bread. Why don't you do that? Now, that sounds like a simple request, but listen, after 40 days without food, it is so easy to go, yeah, I need to do that. I'm hungry. I deserve to eat. I, I'm starving. And yet part of the mission there was to wait on God. And so Jesus said, well, man can't live by bread alone. He lives by the will of God. And then the enemy tempts him and says, because Jesus knows that part of the mission is to accomplish this work to reclaim a lost world. And he says, and Satan says to him, I'll give you the world. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. We can end this thing right now. You can be comforted. I can encourage you. You can satisfy all these uh, desires that are not being met in this moment and you can have it all. And Jesus shows his authentic manhood by standing in the face of that temptation saying, no, no, I'll wait. Now I tell you that guys, because your greatest enemy, you can write it down the rest of your life to accepting these responsibilities, to leading courageously, to rejecting passivity, <laughs> to turning off the TV and getting up and investing yourself in a directed way in your family is going to be to say no to a feeling. No to a feeling. Because men have to live above feelings many, many times every day in order to be an authentic man. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson made this statement. Nothing can bring a man peace but the triumph of principles. And I want you to know, nothing can bring a man the deepest satisfactions of his masculinity than the triumph of truth in his life. Not the satisfying of a feeling.
That's kind of like candy. It tastes good for a moment, but then it leaves you empty and starved in just a short period of time, not truly satisfied. This is part of manhood. The first Adam abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. And then finally, this fourth defining difference. The first Adam sought a greater reward. The second Adam expected a greater reward. There's a difference between those two. Remember, the first Adam was not satisfied with the life God was promising him. He thought, unfortunately, that he was going to beat God's best for him. And guys, look at me. You will never, ever beat what God already wants to give you. He's got a great life for you. All he wants you to do is follow him and get it. But this first Adam thought, no, I can beat that. There's something better than that. And what he discovered is what every man since him has discovered as we try to gain something better than what God already wants to give us. And that's what it says in Proverbs 24, 20. It says this, for there will be no future for the evil man. We may try to get it, but we won't like it when we get it because it's not going to be as good as God had for us already. That's what he discovered. The second Adam, on the other hand, knew if he stayed the course, he would get God's best. In fact, there are numbers of examples of what I'm going to call in your outline, second Adam living, beginning with Jesus himself. Because all through the scriptures, the scriptures keep telling us, keep encouraging us, keep, give us examples of men who believed God over a period of time and got the best in life. That's how they stayed the course. Jesus being our primary example. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Just look at the verse. Let me mention it to you. Mention one thing to you. It says, And let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that is, in glory. Now look at the verse for a minute. How did Jesus... Endure the cross. How did Jesus despise the shame? How did Jesus make it through one of the most difficult times any man could ever enter into? How? It tells us in the verse. Because in the midst of that agony and seeming defeat, Jesus expected a greater reward. See the phrase? Because of the joy set before him. He looked through the difficulty of the moment and expected on the other side, this is going to lead to something noble and honorable and glorious. That's how he stayed the course. And this is just not for the Son of Man. You may say, well, that's, that's Jesus. No, there are other guys here in Scripture that we can look at. For instance, here's what David said. He said, I would have despaired. This is the king. He said, I would have despaired of life had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in this life the land of the living. In other words, what David is saying is, hey, I want you all to know through this psalm, I'm, I, I didn't follow after God for nothing. I knew there was gain in this. And so in the midst of hard times, rather than despair, I knew there would be something good before me in the land of the living. And that's what I kept my eyes on. It was the same with Moses. Look what it says of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And you go, how could he do that? Here's how he did it. 
because he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. As grand as Egypt was in that moment, he didn't cave into the feelings of seduction that constantly implored him to give in. No, he looked beyond that to a greater reward. And he lived his life in light of that. And then finally, in 2 Timothy, Paul says this about himself. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to one, but also to all who love is appearing. I can stay the course. I can fight the good fight. Why? Because I'm expecting the greater reward. All through the scriptures, there are examples like that and also exhortations to that same end. For instance, in 1 Timothy 4.8, it says this, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise, not just for the present life, but also for the life to come. There's reward in this. You've got to believe there's reward in it. My favorite one of all, though, is Hebrews 11:6. Here's what it says. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For anyone who comes to God, who wants to be a real man, must believe that he is, but he also, it's not just he has to believe in the existence of God. No, he's also got to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, who stay after him. You've got to expect the greater reward. There'll be moments, whether it's working with your children or being holding up your integrity in the workplace, spending time with a child or thinking creatively to encourage another man. Those things of giving your life away like that have to have within them, embedded within them, the expectation that in this is reward and then to believe God for it. Years ago as a college student, after becoming a young Christian, I had to look at my circumstances around me with, as I mentioned to you earlier in this year, a crumbling family, an alcoholic dad. I'd just been injured in football, had to give it up. There was despair there. Wasn't doing good in school. And in the rubble of those kind of things where life had kind of caved in on me as a young Christian, I had to decide whether I was gonna live for Christ. And one of the things that I held on to in those early days as a young man with all that around me, and some of you right now are in that kind of rubble. Your life is kind of caved in. And I, I know what that feels like. I've been there. And so a, a, a conclusion has to be made whether I'm going to give in to this, give in to the feelings, play the victim, blame others, and just kind of, you know, wallow my way through the next few years and hope something good happens to me. Or even worse, decide I'm going to seize evil and get my own reward. You've got that choice. And all I can tell you is at that moment, I made a decision. And the decision was to believe God. And there was nothing around me to encourage me for that. Just believe God and His promise that there was a greater reward there if I would choose a nobler life. Well, that was then. That was at 18. I'm 53. And now I'm looking back and I'm going to say to you, 
Has there been reward? And here's what I would say. I go, well, I've dealt with the wounds in my life over the last number of years responsibly, and I don't feel tied to my past at all anymore. I don't even think about it. I feel released and healed. That's a reward. I look at my marriage, my marriage of 32 years, and I look at my wife who admires me. In fact, she's up in Fayetteville today, but I got up this morning because she left early yesterday. And when I got up this morning on our mirror was this sticky note with this big happy face saying, remember, I love you. And I look at that and I think, you know, my wife really does love me. There's great admiration there. Admiration that really I don't think I deserve. But when I look in her face and see admiration after 32 years, I go, that's a reward. I look at my kids who are reasonably healthy and emotionally stable. And I go, that's a reward. I look at the fact that I have a cause in life. I enjoy getting up in the morning, even on mornings like this that are real early. And coming in and pouring my heart out to guys like you and encouraging guys to hang in there. And I do so not because it's work. It's a joy. It's my cause. And I love that. That's part of my reward. I've had a host of great experiences over my lifetime. I look back over the season of my life since becoming a Christian and all the incredible things that have happened not just to me, but around me. And I go, this is reward. And then on top of that, I look at the fact that because of trusting Christ, over the last 30-something years, there has no, there's not been any major dead ends that I've hit because of foolishness that I've had to spend additional years trying to recover from. And that in itself is reward. So is there a reward out there? And not only that, but there is also this greater expectation that one day after this life is over, there'll be additional reward for having made decisions that you never saw and you never will see, but God saw. And he says, I'll never forget those. In fact, I'll bring those up someday so you can hear them. All of that is reward. That's what Jesus promised when he walked the earth as the ultimate man. And he said to humanity, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's the call. The call is to real manhood. So let's sum all of that up and let's ask the question, so what is a real man cut from the biblical mold? Now we're at the point of me delivering finally the promise I made to you. What is a real man? Okay, here it is. If you want a succinct definition that you can carry with you, a real man is one who rejects passivity. He stops just standing there. He's one who accepts responsibility for God's will, for God's work, for God's woman. He's one who leads courageously. He becomes a life giver because he chooses to be and he asks God to help him to be. And ultimately he becomes that to others around him. And the whole time he's doing these things, He's expecting the greater reward, God's reward. I remember years ago when uh, my son Garrett was just a teenager, he's 14. And he and I had talked about this definition. I'd encourage it and he holds me accountable to it. I hold him accountable to it. But he was out with a group of uh, his peers and one of our youth pastors. 
who hadn't been through men's fraternity, and they were just out having a little uh, session together. And uh, the youth pastor said, hey, let me ask you guys a question. Who can tell me what a man is? And everybody just sat there quiet, except Garrett. And he was in the back going. And finally, the youth pastor said, Garrett, you seem to know. What's a man? And Garrett said, a real man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward, God's reward. The pastor stepped back and said, man, where'd you get that? And he said, from my dad. And men, that's the way it ought to be. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.